football. Ow! Through to the most awful types of suffering that we can think about. It's not worth imagining, is it, what befell those five men in that submarine this week. Here's the problem in a, in a diagram. Some of you might like a diagram, and this is how it's been put classically, okay, by philosophers and other thinkers down the age. You see, the Bible says that God is good and loving. You've got this on your handout as well, by the way. You can see it there if you can't quite read my words there. The Bible says that God is loving and good, and that he's powerful too. He can do everything. He's the creator of the world. He made it, and he sustains it. And yet our experience shows us, and the Bible isn't uh, immune to this either, that there is the presence of evil and suffering in our world. So the trilemma is this, if you like. A trilemma. Three, three things, and there's a problem between them. How can all these three things be true at the same time? Because surely if God was good and loving and powerful, well, he'd stop the suffering. He'd just prevent it. He wouldn't allow bad things to happen in his world. So therefore, we look at the world and we see, well, the one thing that we can be sure of in this world is that God is that there is definitely evil and suffering. We experience it personally, we read about it in the news, and so, so people say, they say, well, there's evil and suffering in the world for sure, therefore, these things cannot be true. They can't be true. Because if God was loving and powerful, then he'd do something about it. Or at the very least, that the God of the Bible can't be true. Because how can you have a loving and powerful God and yet someone who does nothing, supposedly, about evil and suffering? So people might say, well, he might be loving, but he's a bit weak. Or he might be powerful. But who wants to believe and trust in a God who's powerful with no love? So you see, here is the trilemma that that we're, we're trying to tackle this evening. How can all three of these things be true at the same time. Before we get into this, let me say uh, three, three things by way of um, kind of introduction. Uh, the first is this. I have not suffered very much in my life. Not yet. I've walked the road of suffering with others, but personally, I don't know it. I don't know it. I've sat on New Year's Eve with my good friend and his 13-year-old daughter two weeks before she died of leukemia, I've walked the road, but I've not experienced it myself. And I want to be honest about that when I come to this kind of a question. The second thing is this, uh, that I can only scratch the surface this evening. It'll be about 20 minutes, I think. I can only scratch the surface of what is an incredibly deep and painful and emotive topic for many of us. And so I hope that um, what I say this evening is helpful. I hope it is. I hope it's true. Uh, but I also hope that if something I, says, uh, something I say this evening it doesn't quite sit with you right, that you ask me about it or that you talk to somebody else about it, because this, would, this could be the beginning of a conversation, perhaps for some of us. It's certainly not the totality of what can be said on such a massive subject um, as this. And then the third thing uh, to say is this, that I suppose it's to uh, talk about this trilemma and to say this, that actually... Just to point out that even the way that the problem of evil, if you want to call it that, is set up, such as it has been classically formulated there, assumes the presence of God. It presupposes the existence of God. So even this problem here, well actually we could say on a philosophical level, it's not really a problem. Of course we all understand it to be a problem, but we could say on a philosophical level it's not a problem. Why do I say that? Well how do we know 
that anything is truly evil, truly bad in this world. We can only know that something is truly evil and truly bad if there's an absolute good in the world that we can measure it against. Who is that absolute good if not God? So you see, even the problem itself kind of falls at the first hurdle. But don't worry, that's not all that can be said uh, this evening. Just to point that out uh, before we start. You see, I do want to, um, I do want to uh, tackle this question because it's not a theoretical question. That's not uh, really what we're talking about this evening, is it? And not, it's not like some kind of maths problem. It's a real and emotional and felt problem. And I know that this is a felt question for some of us here in person or listening online who are going through some really, really hard times, harder than you've ever known before. And it's not just a felt question for, the, for somebody who's a skeptic, who says, ah, oh, God, no God, look at the suffering in the world. It's a question for Christians. I myself have been asked in the past couple of weeks by someone going through a really tough time, how can God, if God cares for me, why would he ordain this suffering in my life? What can I say? I found myself speechless. It's unusual for me. But I do want to suggest some answers to this trilemma. That the all-powerful, good and loving God of the Bible does allow people to suffer. Nay, even more than that, it's not as though God turns a blind eye to it, the way a teacher might allow all sorts of awful things to happen in their class because they want an easy life. I've been there and done it. But rather this, that the all-powerful, good and loving God of the Bible, we could even say, sends suffering to his world. Wow. He sends suffering to his world. And why does he do it? Well, there's three reasons, and they're there on the handout. You can see them uh, in front of you. And the first is this, that God sends suffering into this world as a consequence of human freedom. And there we're looking really at those verses that we read from Genesis chapter 3. To answer this question to make this point we need to go back to the very beginning of the bible and remember that the world that god made was perfect and there was no evil and suffering there if we were to read genesis chapter one we would read again and again after every day god says and behold it was good 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 sixth day it was good seventh day it was very good very good very good. God saw all that he made and it was good, 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 very good. There was no shame. There were no problems. There was no suffering. But that world was also, as it were, a test for the first man and his wife, a test that they failed. Because God didn't create automatons who had no agency or freedom of their own. He made human beings and he gave them the dignity of choice. And Adam and Eve failed that test. Just one tree they weren't to eat from, and yet they took from it. And who here, if we're honest with ourselves, can say we would have done any different in the circumstance? And as a consequence of that act of disobedience and rebellion, we read and we're told that suffering entered the world. It was like a foreign intrusion into our world. And that's really what we have in these verses before us. You can flip over the page to save you or look it up in your Bible, whichever you prefer. Um, you can read those there, those curses that, that God puts on the world and on people in the world. I'm not going to read them all again, but you'll have seen them as Claire read them. There will be pains in childbirth. About 50% of us, or near enough there, maybe know what that is, don't we, in this room. 
There'll be problems between the sexes. That relationship is, is marred and broken between man and woman. Growing food is going to involve sweat and hard work, whereas it wouldn't have done before, we assume. Until finally death, as the ultimate curse, is pronounced. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And do you know, do you know that even that suffering, not directly connected to human activity, a natural disaster or a genetic mutation, can be traced back to this moment, this act of rebellion. For we read in those verses that even the very ground is cursed. See that on the third paragraph on the handout, middle of verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. The very earth. It's as though the earth has been jolted and it's spinning slightly off centre. Cursed by the presence of evil. Tainted and spoilt by human disobedience and sin. So of course it's not God, is it, who picks up an assault rifle and murders children in a school. It's not God who brooms and traffics vulnerable people. It's not God who bullies and abuses and spreads hate and lies on social media at school. It's not God who does that. No, often suffering, in fact mostly we might say, is a, is a consequence of human folly. But we can say even more than this from these verses, that even tsunamis and mental illness and earthquakes and cancer are part of life in a broken, fallen, rebellious, messed up world. Not that there's any specific link between the sin of an individual and the suffering that befalls them, but rather it's a symptom of living in a cursed world, a world cursed by the rebellion of humans. That's one answer the Bible gives, that suffering, the presence of suffering in the world is a consequence of human freedom, if you like, and the poor choices that so often we make. The second is this, that the presence of suffering in the world, God sends suffering into the world, why? Well, as a megaphone to call us back to him. Some of you might be familiar with this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, I don't know if that's true in your experience or not. But at the time of Jesus, as we read there in that passage from Luke, there was a well-known tragedy which occurred in Jerusalem, a tower in a place called Siloam. And we can actually read about it in the Jewish historian Josephus. He writes about this tower that fell over and, and killed people. So um, we don't just have the Bible's word, but it's also corroborated by other historical sources there at the time. And what's interesting to note is to see what Jesus does with that story. Did you notice first he specifically disconnects the guilt of the 18 who died from the tragedy? He does it twice, doesn't he? He talks about the Galileans who've been slighted by Pilate. And he says, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Obviously, no, verse 3. And then he says it again in verse 4 about the, those who, who died in the tragedy in Siloam. Do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. No. But then he turns this event back on those who are still living. I tell you, he says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. 
Jesus specifically uses an example of suffering in the world to challenge those who are listening to heed his words. Maybe we find that uncomfortable, a little bit difficult, challenging, but it's there. God sends suffering into the world to rouse people from their slumber and their stupor, to help them think and concentrate and focus on things of eternal value and significance. You see, Jesus brought and brings a message of life, eternal life, but it is a a message that requires a response of faith. And perhaps in some small measure, God sometimes might send suffering into his world in order that we might not cling to things of this world, which are passing and transitory and going, but rather that we might cling instead to him by faith in Christ and know an eternal hope of a perfect world where there will be no suffering. The Titanic's been in the, in the news, hasn't it, over the past week, for obvious and very tragic reasons. There's that phrase, isn't there? Rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. And there's a sense in, in which, if we're occupied only by things on this earth, with no reference to eternity then we are living an ultimately doomed existence. We're going down with the ship and there's no hope. If we're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic or in our back garden or with our sports club and and that's all we're focused on, then we're going down and there's no hope. And one way God has to wake us out of our stupor and bring us to our senses and search for hope and meaning and help and ultimate eternal healing and rest is to send suffering. What parent doesn't know this? That sometimes it might be good for their child to experience a a knockback or a setback, a trial or a difficulty of some kind or the other because it focuses them on something that really matters. So with God, in his sovereignty, he can use times of great suffering and trial to rouse us, to bring us before matters of eternity, to help us refocus on the things that are of ultimate importance in this world. Think of the story of Job. If I could tell that story very, very briefly. What does the devil say about Job? The devil says, ah, God, if you take away all the nice stuff he's got, if you take, away, take it all away, he'll abandon you because he's only in it for what he's got. And what happens? Job clings even tighter to God when he's put under affliction and suffering and duress. Well, that's the second uh, answer I want to suggest to you. And the third is this, a thought experiment, if you like. And that is this, that to remove suffering, if we were to say, why can't God just prevent suffering? Well, to remove suffering would actually ultimately be be to remove us. Allow me to conduct a brief thought experiment with me. Let's say you were put in charge of cleansing the earth of all evil and suffering. I wonder, uh, where would you start? Where would you start? Who would you start with? Uh, terrorists? Yeah, I think we could all agree on that. Murderers? Perhaps. Uh, rapists? Pretty vile. Those who've abused others? Dictators? Power hungry and callous about human life? Adulterers? Fraudsters? Thieves? Those who've been convicted of any violent offence? Maybe. Cheats? Liars? 
those with anger issues just can't control it? Who's left? I've not said very many categories, have I? Me? You? See, removing suffering presumes an innocence that none of us enjoy. And God sends suffering as a consequence of human sin, as a megaphone to his world. And because to remove suffering would be to remove us. But that isn't all that can be said this evening. I want to suggest to you that God doesn't prevent suffering, but rather he does something far more beautiful and powerful. And that is this, that he joins us in our suffering. You see, this is where my diagram is actually quite unhelpful. Because in the gospel we read and we understand that God is not removed from suffering, though he's floating above it, not aware of it, hasn't tasted it, doesn't know what it is. Not at all. Rather, God in the person of Jesus came down to our world of suffering and lived among us and died a painful death, (coughs) the death of a criminal. God entered into our world of suffering, tasted suffering in the person of Christ for us. And so you see that it's not that God prevents suffering, but he does join us in our suffering. Go back to Ed Sheeran. He's released a song in the last couple of months uh, speaking about the loss of his close friend Jamal, the guy who launched his music career. And do you know what the song title is? It's called Eyes Closed. Eyes Closed. It's all about the death of his friend and the title is called Eyes Closed. And the reason is, as you read the lyrics, faced with insurmountable pain and suffering, he just can't face it. All he can do is close his eyes. That's his only response. In the documentary, he says this, life hasn't actually moved on for me yet, and I don't think it actually ever will. All he feels he can do is close his eyes. Now, that might be an entirely understandable and legitimate response. Please don't hear me to say that that's the wrong thing to feel in any way. But the point is that he can see nothing beyond it. He's got no hope. Nothing for the future. You see, even if we uh, understood and grasped the reasons for why God might send suffering into his world, we might still find that Ed Sheeran's one is the response we take in the moment. The pain is too great, too visceral, too real, and that's okay. Don't hear condemnation of that. But, but, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want to suggest to us that there's help at hand, not just to understand this problem intellectually and grapple with it, but actually, to face suffering, suffering head on, head up, eyes open. Because God himself suffers for us so that we can face the future with our eyes open, not closed. After the fall of mankind, God would have been entirely within his rights to wipe his hands of mankind. And yet he didn't. You see, the gospel says this, that God didn't merely decree suffering from above and stay remote from it, but rather in order to save people from this world of suffering and evil, he entered into it. You see, just like Ed Sheeran, actually, Jesus lost his best friend. Just like Ed Sheeran, Jesus faced a court trial. Jesus cried, faced with suffering and evil. 
And it didn't stop there. Jesus didn't merely tip his, dip his toe in the water of suffering. He plunged into it, willingly dying on the cross. For he understood that this was the only way for men and women, boys and girls, to be rescued from the sin and the suffering it had caused and bring them pl- plucked to safety for eternity. So the Christian believer finds this, that in the midst of their suffering, they are never alone. For alongside them walks one who's tasted death for their sake. One who has taken on himself the punishment that's due to them so that they might walk with God forever. You know, you only close your eyes if you're scared of something. Think about watching the scariest film you've ever watched. What did you do when it got to the point of high tension? Behind a blanket. You close your eyes. Watching England on penalties. You close your eyes because you just don't know what's going to come next. You're scared. You're terrified. But the Christian need never to close their eyes, not forever, in the face of suffering. For alongside them walks one who shows them his hands and his feet pierced for them. Who points them to his side, stashed open by a Roman spear for their forgiveness. Who takes their hand and with their eyes open shows them a vision of a new heaven and a new earth where all suffering is gone and where God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. Where there'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain because the old order of things has passed away. And friends, we're in the old order today. We live in a world of suffering. We can't avoid it. But God sends us this suffering as a consequence of our rebellion against him. And in order that we might not cling to this world, which is passing away, but turn to him and find in the gospel of suffering, of a suffering saviour, hope in this life, and the courage and the faith to face our own death with our eyes wide open, to face our own suffering that comes with our eyes wide open, looking forward to that day when we will behold God face to face. If you know pain and suffering here this evening, but you don't know this God who came into the world for us, then please don't leave this evening before talking to him. Grab someone to talk to them, to ask your questions, to discuss it more. We'd be delighted to chat. Right now, though, we're going to close our service with a song.